Hello everyone, my name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour on Disrupt TV. We welcome you to join us uh, and follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send your questions to Ray and I and our distinguished guests using hashtag Disrupt TV. We also have uh, 170 guests on iTunes, so check out our iTunes and our episodes on YouTube. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong, best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business, CEO and co-founder of Constellation Research, regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, Forbes ZDNet. We'll probably do 50 keynotes around the world this year. That number may be low. And uh, one of the best follows on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot, Vala. Um, and I'm glad to hear it with my co-host, Vala Afshar. You are seeing one of the top CAO, CMO influencers in the world, big contributor, Huffington Post, and author. And, uh, but more importantly, we have awesome guests today. So who do we have today, live from Kitchener, Ontario? You know, one of the best parts of Disrupt TV is we get to invite some of the top, best, and brightest CEOs of startups, hyper-growth startups that are as uh, former Steve Jobs would say, putting a dent in the universe. So we'll start our show with Michael Lick, co-founder and CEO of Vidyard. Michael um, is a thought leader, he's a surfer, he's a serial entrepreneur in marketing and sales technology, and he leads uh, the development of one of the most innovative video marketing and video analytics technologies in the world. In fact, Salesforce uses Vidyard throughout our ecosystem to collaborate and exchange ideas and grow our business. Michael's an authority on entrepreneurship, driving growth and connecting audiences in the age of customer experience. He's been quoted in Forbes, Wall Street, New York Times, TechCrunch. Uh, he's been called upon to deliver TEDx uh, keynotes um, at Digital Collective, at Y Combinator, at Ad Innovation Conference, and has been recognized by Peter Boyd Award for Canada's Next Generation executive leadership, and marketing magazines top 30 under 30, and Ernest Young's Entrepreneur of the Year. Believe you me, I had to cut the bio down because our show's only an hour. <laughs> Follow Michael on Twitter at M-I-C-H-A-E-L-L-I-T-T. -L -L Michael Litt, welcome to Disrupt TV. Thanks for having me, Vala. Much appreciated. I'm happy to be here. Thank so, hey. you. Thanks for being on the show. Uh, one of the things that caught my attention, and you know, this is something that you know you, you've been advocating for quite some time. And in fact, it's uh, something that you just recently put out: Steam versus STEM. Right? Your, your title in this Fast Company article was "Why This Tech CEO Keeps Hiring Humanities Majors." And uh, I thought it was a really great, insightful view in terms of what we're looking for today. So, do you want to start there by talking about STEM versus STEAM, and and what? Why is that important? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it kind of all started when we had Prime Minister Justin Trudeau in our office uh, at the end of April. We did a, a broadcast fireside chat and working with politicians, uh, you quickly learn that there's a bit of a gap in their understanding of how technology businesses work, who we hire, what we build and, and what we do. And I think a lot of people label tech companies like Vidyard, for instance, as being a bunch of engineers and, and computer scientists uh, sitting in a room playing foosball. Uh, drinking beer and, and writing code, uh, but in reality, <laughs> it's you know it, it might be like that when we started the company in a dorm room, but the business has obviously evolved quite a bit. And you know the makeup of our company is probably ten to fifteen percent engineers and computer scientists, and the rest exists in roles in, in obviously marketing and sales, general operations, revenue ops, etc. And so we did a, a, a kind of a, comp a composition of the company in preparation for uh, the Prime Minister's visit where we broke down the types of people we've hired, the school programs that they're from, the experiences they had, and realized that our company is made up of more humanities majors uh, than it is technology, engineering, and math majors. Uh, and so, you know, I wanted to, to talk about this publicly. I wanted to communicate it externally. Um, and then reflecting on myself, I realized you know, the limitations I have as a CEO are generally based around, you know, the lack of experience and education I have in the arts. I'm, a, I'm an engineering uh, major, systems design engineering at the University of Waterloo. I think of everything in systems. And, you know, building software is very different from building a company in that the variables in a company are people. Uh, people are variable in their own nature. And so um, I've actually started doing my own research into the arts to, to try to fill that gap in my own ability to understand people and, and build the company. So all these things kind of came together in the perfect storm and, and we decided to write a, 
a really compelling article about it to, to change kind of the stigma and thought process on tech. And it seemed to resonate with the world's uh, humanities majors, which uh, we're pretty excited about. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. You guys did, Vidyard did a comprehensive benchmark study that you published this year. And in it, it said mass consumption by consumers to the tune of 20 billion video views per day across Facebook and Snapchat and YouTube alone is driving adoption within business to address shifting expectations. Tell us about Vidyard. Tell us why you co-founded started this company and share with us the importance of video in business. Absolutely. So if you think about, uh, and last week I was in Hong Kong and uh, had the opportunity to spend a little bit of time with Gary Vaynerchuk. So I might might pull some of his wisdom into this. But if you look at the evolution of content and the way we consume content, the are three mediums that kind of prevail are audio-based content, so radio, podcast, the video-based content, television, uh, digital video, et cetera, uh, and then images and text, which all bulk together. And the way we experience images and text, audio and video uh, has just changed with respect to the delivery mechanism in the medium, whether that's the internet, whether that's radio, whether it's broadcast television, whether that's an app like Instagram, Snapchat, or Vine. And in high school, I was obsessed with video on the basis that I was, a, I was an aspiring freestyle skier. My friends and I would make uh, video edits of ourselves doing uh, ridiculous and harmful things in the train park. We'd send, <laughs> these, send these links to sponsors in an individual hosted uh, web page and then if the sponsor viewed it, the view counter would go from zero to one. And we knew they watched it, and so we'd follow up and ask them for feedback and all sorts of information. So I was experiencing video at a very young age. Fast forward a few more years, um, and uh, I had worked at BlackBerry and Cypress Semiconductor. And in both of those jobs, I had contracted businesses to come in and make video uh, on the basis that the software we built was very complicated, hard to use, hard to install. And video was one of the best ways of communicating and showing people how to do it. And the impact to uh, the number of support inquiries the support team was getting, uh, the marketing generated leads that the organization was getting, uh, spoke to the value of video in business. And so I combined this perspective of consumer video um, as someone who's consuming it. And Valerie, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a huge medium um, with my understanding of how to produce video. And we decided to start a video production company. And in doing that, we worked with a bunch of clients and understood that their pains were, how do I actually use video for my business? And we looked at this, this trend of, of the video native coming into the organization. And these are people that you know, obviously grew up with a 1080p recording device in their pocket, <laughs> are creating content, sharing with their friends. You know, we've referred to them as screenagers. We've referred to them as, as uh, video natives. And they expect video to be a part of their experience in the workplace, whether that's the way they're trained, the way they're enabled, the way they're communicating ideas, or the way they're selling or the way they're sold to. And so we built video ultimately to capitalize on this, this transition and this video native coming into the business uh, because video is such a strong part of our lives. Uh, it's available in pretty much every platform and every medium. And, uh, and we want to help businesses understand how to use video effectively because, you know, the businesses that skipped out on digital early obviously lost out in the long run. Um, same thing goes for social. Businesses have truly, I think, understood how to communicate their brand and empower their, their teams. Uh, we see video as, as one of those types of waves that, that businesses truly need to understand, break down, and, and succeed with. Wow, I'm waiting for that video for, uh, with Michael doing this switch backside 540 tail grab. <laughs> <laughs> I can send you, I, you know what, I could probably <laughs> dig up uh, one of my old videos. And back then, interestingly enough, this would have been in the early 2000s, um, the file size limit of the software we were using was five megabytes. Ooh, so these wow. video these like videos were like, yeah, 10, 15 <laughs> seconds long and I might look like a green blob, but you can see the skis go over my head and that was, you know, generally enough. Wow. <laughs> now, now, one of the things that you talk about a lot is really why text-based digital comms um, is so impersonal, the email versus the video, right? And so what are some strategies for, you know, with video that leaders can use to better connect with clients? Because, you know, a lot of leaders are, are, are camera shy. Right, I mean, we, we, you talk to them, they're great, and then we actually get them on camera and they, they turn into a different person, what happened? Right, so, so how can you help leaders ease into that and get better at video? You know, it's funny, uh, I always think about this, right, and we, we just had a conversation this morning with a customer. Um, there's definitely a generational divide inside of organizations in that you've got people who have never worked 
um, without access to the internet. So let's call those millennials. And you have people that understand what it's like to work without the internet. I am not one of those people. I do not know what people did before the internet existed in the workplace. And that gap tends to correlate fairly nicely with people that are comfortable on video and people who aren't. Uh, it's the same thing with people who don't like having their photo taken. And the thing that I always find interesting is when I describe it to someone as, you know, are you comfortable meeting people in person? The answer is yes. And so why are you not comfortable projecting yourself on video or being on video? Because this hangout is just like all of us sitting around a room. And at some point in the future, we're all going to be wearing VR headsets. And it would be like we're all sitting around my boardroom <laughs> table here. But we can all be anywhere in the world we want to be. If we're speaking different languages, our strings will automatically be, be translated. Um, that's going to disrupt the transportation industry, everything. So when you start to frame it up as, you know, this is the inevitable future of communication, people start realizing that, you know, they have to kind of get off the pot, so to speak, and, and, and get involved. And the reason video works is because in this world of automation, right, let's look at marketing automation, for instance, it's kind of the victim of its own success. You get an email from a company trying to sell you something, whether it's a person or the business, your automatic instinct is that it's an automated email. Um, open rates of like 1%, click-through rates of less than that are celebrated. You know, back in the 90s, an email distribution list of a quarter million that I managed had an open rate of 90%, and it's just deteriorated from there. So as automation comes into our lives in marketing and sales, you know, the human's only real role is to create rapport and personal connections and be artistic and be creative. And so video communication really allows that in the sales process, in the training process, in the marketing process, et cetera. And the more personalized you can make those communications, the better. So you know, that's why I'm a huge advocate for video and, and we've obviously seen the results with our customers. Sure. Your, uh, the benchmark study spoke that 85% of uh, businesses now report using internal staff and resources to produce video content. 78% of the businesses use video on their website uh, or, or product site, and 72% use it on social. So the good news was there's you know, a great commitment to video, but one of the stats that kind of spoke to me was that only 35% of the businesses report using advanced video analytics to track the performance and the engagement level of their video efforts. So eight out of 10 are fully committed, but one in three are actually trying to create a scientific approach to optimize engagement. What, to talk to us about the importance of not just being comfortable to share video content, but also take it to the next step to reach your full potential, and that is to understand whether the content is engaging and how you need to modify it to, 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 get, to gain you know, greater attention and awareness. Yeah, I mean, in, in today's content world, um, I think context is more important than, than content, so to speak, right? And the, the, the kind of downside of using traditional marketing technologies, whether it's email, text, white papers, whatever, uh, is that the analytics you get are pretty limited in that you know that someone opened it or someone clicked it, but you don't actually know what they consumed. And so people have all this data um, and they tend to either not trust the data, they don't know how to draw attribution from the data, it exists in, in many, many silos. I mean, uh, you're the, the CMO whisperer, so you, know, you understand the challenges <laughs> of, of attribution and pipeline management, and I'm the CEO who's asking for you know, all the information on our best supported campaigns, you know, our, our spend ratios, et cetera. And so there's this flurry of activity around truly understanding if the, if the content is working and if the context is there or not. Um, the beautiful thing about video is that because a, a video analytics platform will give you the second by second attention span of not only your entire audience, but a single individual viewer. And so when our sales team sends a video to uh, a prospect, they know if that person watched 20% of it or if they watched 100% of it. They get the notification inside of Salesforce CRM that lets them know that that person viewed the video. They also get it right inside the workflow inside of email. And we call that digital body language. And so what we found is you need to put the data inside of people's workflow for them to truly get value out of it. And a video view from a digital body perspective is so much more important than you know, a, a white paper open or an email click. Uh, and so I think the, the gap is just that the data sits in these platforms and nobody has the time, the understanding, or the know-how on how to draw it all the way through the funnel. So the way we're addressing that moving forward is based on that feedback is by really pushing the data 
uh, into a context-rich environment that makes sense for the person to consume it, to understand it, and to act quickly on it. I would like to wow. see, and I think this is going to happen if it hasn't happened already, apply machine learning and apply maybe even deep to look at, just to look at the moments, maybe even assess sentiment by facial recognition of the presenter to the moments of interest and correlate so that if you send that video to a thousand people, you can actually sense the exact moments where you were able to peak interest maybe with the language or the, again, the, the facial recognition, whatever the science is, to be able to A-B test the video and recognize that when this person does this, that's when we get the most impact in yeah. terms of interest. Um, that type of pattern recognition to me, I think, is, is, could be fascinating. Well, it's amazing, right? Because that will feed the eventual automation of video creation, which is yes. inevitability. <laughs> and I, and I, I'm sure you've seen the President Obama um, or I guess I should say non used to be President Obama, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Canadian, so I, I can be politically incorrect with the with the number. <laughs> but um, there's a bot of him um, communicating, and it, it looks very realistic, right? And so, so our our company uh, started on the basis of trying to understand. We did a a machine learning uh, project in undergrad um, that was trying to understand at Waterloo or here? yes at Waterloo, at Waterloo um, that tried to understand. Um, based on a video, based on the, the tags of the video, uh, some image processing, the content being spoken in the video, what the attention span of that asset would be before it was even delivered to an audience. Um, and we needed millions and millions and millions of videos and huge data sets to actually drive that information. So uh, we built Vidyard um, in, in part to get that data. So this machine learning system has been under the sheets for a very long time. Um, learning and 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 starting to develop this type of of insight into you know for starters you know what attention span um, should be expected from that from that piece of content based on who's it going to etc. Um, to eventually get to the point where absolutely like what type of present presentation styles like what type of facial structures like there's so many more variables to this wow. video communication thing that don't exist in other forms um, and yet it's very expensive so. To that point, all that data is going to feed, you know, yeah. the automation of video bots that that communicate on our behalf. And at that point, humans can just sit back and, and feed the matrix. Sure. Are the you <laughs> <laughs> what do you say? Come on. I was. Say, are, you, are you planning to work with Vector Institute because Canada is investing hundreds of millions yep. to become the epicenter of AI, uh, and and so talent from Waterloo University of Toronto and all these public and private donors like yep. centers of the world that are, are really investing talent and, and energy to AI and, and, and Canada. So I see you're, you're in an epicenter of goodness. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's incredible. And, and for my wife works uh, or just started an AI startup, um, you know, based out of the, the productivity vector Institute and Canada actually kind of looked at itself and said, okay, we've got 30 million people. We're a much smaller country than the United States. Um, we can't own multiple areas of innovation, so we want to own one. We've got some great engineers and scientists coming out of awesome schools, so let's really focus our initiatives and call it a super cluster, um, connect Toronto, uh, Toronto and Waterloo, so to speak. We're still Toronto. working on, on the train. I think a teleporter will happen first, but really get, get deep on that. So, um, yeah, we've got some um, machine learning uh, researchers um, in the business. We collaborate with the University of Waterloo on research. Uh, I mean, for what it's worth, BlackBerry was headquartered here, uh, as mentioned earlier, and a lot of the research on IP and digital communications and what ended up being the oh, invention yeah. of the mobile internet came out of, out of the universities here. So we really, we're here because of, of that resource and what we can learn from the university. Hey, real quick, real quick. Um, we always ask people, who are your mentors? Who are the people that inspire you? I know you talked a little bit to Gary Vee. We, we interviewed him at Disrupt TV show sometime back. You can check out the episode. But tell us about who are your mentors? What's important? Uh, who do you mentee? Yeah, so um, my mentors, I really look for operators uh, who have been in my shoes. I think operational empathy and compassion is, is very important in a mentor-mentee relationship. And so my board is actually made up of what I would call my mentors, which a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and CEOs have their boards made up of you know people with with financial commitments and fiduciary responsibilities that don't necessarily care about your well-being, but also some of the softer elements of starting a business like culture and values, etc. So Byron Dieter um, from Bessemer Venture Partners uh, tends to be a, a very close mentor. 
Uh, he was an operator before becoming an investor. Um, he has, you know, been part of uh, Twilio, a very successful recent IPO, Shopify, uh, Eloqua, which was a marketing automation system, which we're partners yep. in. Um, Twitch, Bessemer's uh, list of, of companies is very extensive. Um, another person that's very close to me um, and recently joined my board is Shannon Stubo, uh, who's the CMO of LinkedIn. Yep. And uh, she's just, you know, the voice of customer. She's a very modern, forward-thinking CMO, um, is now obviously a part of, of, of Microsoft through that transition um, and just has exposure to what some of the biggest companies and brands are doing in the world from a marketing perspective. And so she really helps facilitate that. Um, and then another individual is a guy named Jim Estel, who is a local entrepreneur, um, set on the board of BlackBerry, um, did very, very well. Uh, now is the CEO and individual shareholder of an appliance company called Danby. Um, and he's just got such a diverse experience building businesses that I can go to him with any question. Um, you know, he's a, a big advocate for my personal health and, and the things that are important that you don't necessarily consider. On the mentee side, um, I actually um, invest in, in, in a number of startups that, that leave Waterloo and go to Y Combinator um, and then plan to come back to Canada to, to build their businesses. And, um, We've actually invested, my co-founder and I, in about 60 businesses now through that structure. And, um, you know, we learn so much from those companies because they're the next generation. They're doing cool things. Their customer acquisition strategies are entirely new and innovative. So it keeps our knife sharp. Um, and then we get to, you know, spend some time and hopefully build the ecosystem around us as well. Excellent. Some great board members. Steve does well. Good work uh, for LinkedIn. Definitely comms and marketing strategy coming together. And Esto was a founding member of uh, board uh, RIM and, and pioneering appliances of all industries right now at Danby. So we are here with Michael Litt, co-founder and CEO of Vidyard. And more importantly, you can follow him at M-I-C-A-E-L-L-I-T-T. Two L's and a two T's. All right. Thanks a lot for being on the show. I hope to catch you sometime live. So thanks, Michael. Thank you guys. Appreciate your time. Thanks. Awesome, man. Wow. We're he capturing is. a piece of history here. So He is terrific CEO, super smart. And uh, definitely a rising star. Keep an eye on uh, Michael. And his company's doing great work, and we're a user. We're a customer. So, so I, can, uh, I can appreciate the analytics side of understanding the importance of video and the work that they're doing. And I think AI is going to really significantly enhance the optimization and, and, and ultimately create better quality content. It'll tell you where you need to focus your time and energy to improve your content. So, so our next guest, not talk about AI and machine learning and ultimately becoming a mathematical corporation. We're delighted to have Angela Zutabarn, author of the Mathematical Corporation. As vice president as at Booz Allen Hamilton, Angela has pioneered the application of machine intelligence to organizational leadership and strategy. Angela led Booz Allen's most advanced data science R&D efforts, including the areas of deep learning and quantum machine learning. So we're honored to have a, a super expert on our show. She was an inventor of machine intelligence and data science strategies that now help businesses and government organizations make better decisions and gain competitive advantage. She's worked with clients in every major US cabinet level department, as well as sub-level agencies. Uh, she's advised many Fortune 500 companies and led teams across major industries. She's a frequent uh, industry academic and media speaker and uh, power of data science. Uh, Angela convenes the Chief Data Officer Council for the U.S. federal government community. You can follow Angela, another must follow on Twitter, at A-N-G-E-L-A-Z-U-T-A-V-E-R-N. Welcome, Angela, to the Shrub TV. Hey, great to be here. Thank you so much. Our hey. guest bios, Ray, are ridiculous. <laughs> I know. The people that we bring on. <laughs> and we could just do bios. We just do I a bunch know, of young bios. So I, mean. I feel <laughs> like I know you guys so well from seeing all your great social media content. <laughs> well, thank you. Well, hey, here's my favorite quote. The most powerful weapon in business today is the alliance between the mathematical smarts of machines and imaginative human intellect of great leaders. To get together, they make the mathematical corporation the business model of the future. So tell us, I'll start here. I mean, what is this mathematical corporation? How did you get the idea to start writing the book uh, with Josh, Josh Sullivan, your co-author? So we are out there every day working with hundreds of organizations and they're government agencies, big Fortune 500 companies, nonprofits, startups, and across the board, we're seeing leaders who are pioneering 
new projects in machine intelligence, um, by the way, many of them whom had never worked in machine intelligence previously, and they were learning so much from what they were going through, and we just sensed such a huge demand for those organizations and those leaders to share their stories. At the same time, we were noticing some trends across all of those uh, entities. So Josh and I decided we, we really just needed to get the story out there. Wow. Yeah. This has been called, this has been, your book has been called the first book to show business leaders how to compete in a new era. And that's by combining the mathematical smarts of machines with the intellect, visionary, and creativity of leaders. So can you tell us what's the difference between a mathematical corporation's use of machine intelligence versus the traditional data science and analytics groups that exist in businesses today? Yeah, great, great question. So you hit the key word, the combination. And so the mathematical corporation is really about a new collaboration between people and machines. It's not just using the computer as a tool. It's actually interacting, and we like to say that AI should be considered another seat at the boardroom table, you know, not just a, a tool to carry out instructions. And the biggest difference that we see between companies that are in the early maturity stages of analytics and data science and those who are truly becoming a mathematical corporation is whether you're looking at data to, uh, you know, discover what happened in the past or whether you're truly using the predictive power of data to predict the future, you know, think differently and then act differently based on those results. Um, so here's interesting stuff that happens when we take and augment humanity, where we learn how to break through the rules, see between the lines, you know, create new rules, and we think about machine intelligence. What's possible when we bring the two together? Um, between machine intelligence and human intelligence. Do the machines get smarter? Do the humans get smarter? Or are we both getting dumber on each other? <laughs> um, all, all of the above, all of the above, I think. And so one of the, a constant theme throughout the book, every leader that we talked with emphasized, you know, people and machines are equally as important. And time and time again, we found examples where leadership and strategy made all the difference, where maybe the underlying technology was the same, but it was really about leadership and strategy. And so one example that demonstrates that is um, with self-driving cars. You know, everybody's familiar with autonomous vehicles. We've got many companies out there uh, racing to develop the best self-driving car system. And so the way Google approached it was, you know, as engineers, they looked at every possible scenario that could happen and developed responses to those scenarios. And they sent out Google employees in Google cars to collect driver data. Tesla, on the other hand, put self-driving features in all of their vehicles and collected all of that data. Um, the difference in the two strategies was that it took Google six years to collect a million miles worth of driver data and Tesla collects that much data every 10 hours. Yep. Again, same, same underlying technology, they're both great at AI, but the decisions you make on strategy can completely change the, the outcome and the results. And then you got Baidu announcing that they're gonna open source their, their software. So yet, yet another strategy. And um, that's why you can never remove leadership and strategy from the equation. As complex as the technology is, we've heard time and time again from leaders around the world that leadership and strategy are even harder. Yes, there's a feedback mechanism, feedback loops are all coming together. So. Yep, yep. We had a couple of weeks ago, uh, author and a Silicon Valley venture capitalist, uh, Scott, partly in his new book, The Fuzzy and the Techie, uh, Why the Liberal Arts Will Rule the Digital World. And he talked about the importance of humanities and importance of ethics in algorithms and AI. We just heard a CEO of one of the fastest growing startups in Canada, Michael Litt, talk about the importance of liberal arts and non-technology pedigree in terms of shaping a company. As you become a mathematical corporation, 
What are some, what's some advice you can share with us in terms of company culture, company makeup, the importance of equality and diversity, so that you can really adapt to these changing business models and consumer behavior? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with Michael's points that, that he was making. Um, the more diverse team, the better. And so at Booz Allen, we have um, some of our best data scientists. Uh, one of them has a background in forestry, and we have others who you know, majored in music. And so just when you bring together um, as many diverse backgrounds as you can, that's when you really get the, the true innovations and the breakthroughs. And you mentioned culture. One of the biggest things that organizations can do is to establish an experimentation culture. And that may be easy for some startups that are out there, but for large organizations, it's really tough. And to have an experimentation culture, it has to be okay to fail sometimes. As you know, um, in developing these, these algorithms, you get it wrong many, many times before you get something good. Um, one of the examples of bringing together people from different backgrounds is in the recent Data Science Bowl that we put on. So every year we put on the Data Science Bowl with Kaggle and reach out to Kaggle's community of a million data scientists around the world. And last year we did a challenge around heart health with MRI scans. And this year was predicting lung cancer with, uh, with lung scans. And in both cases, many of the top teams had absolutely no background in the medical field whatsoever. They were able to learn what they needed to know from tutorials that some of our highly trained doctors were, were willing to give um, to, to make sure that they had the, the basics. But you know, the value that they brought from working in other industries and working in academia, that's what truly led to the, the breakthroughs. And in the case of the lung cancer challenge, the top 10 algorithms are going to improve the prediction and detection of lung cancer by at least 10%. You know, the case studies are incredible. I mean, you talk to Ford, you talk to Intercontinental, you talk to Plaxo, you talk to Merck, the Census Bureau, Tesla. Um, how do companies, these are all different industries, right? And they're all becoming mathematical corporations. So how do these, how does someone get started? What, what do people have to do to get the basics there, whether it's coming from the culture of the organization, you know, the, the type of governance that's required, the leadership, thinking about the types of people to bring on board, the technologies, like what, what are some starting points that are important? A lot of us who are in the tech industry kind of take for granted that everybody understands this stuff, and I can tell you that's not true. Uh, the majority of business leaders out there are not familiar with no. artificial intelligence, machine intelligence, and so the first step for most people is just figuring out what you don't know. And so studying what other people are doing, reading the articles that are out there, books, and just getting a feel for what's possible. And then we talk about leaders being able to shatter their own constraints. We all have constraints based on our life experiences, and we're not gonna spend time working on things that we think are impossible. So one, one example of that was uh, when we talked with NASA, they have a team of folks working on an artificially intelligent robot doctor to treat people living on Mars. Now, if you don't believe that it's even possible to live on Mars in the first place, you're certainly not gonna spend your career building an AI <laughs> doc in the box. And so shattering those constraints, asking the bigger questions, really you know, challenging and inspiring people to work on things that were previously impossible. So that's, that's all part of thinking differently. Um, the next step is acting differently. And there are many pieces to the acting differently to include diverse teams, uh, spreading the power across the organization so it's not just focused in one specialty department area. And I think um, one of the most important things is for leaders to stop relying on gut instinct and mental models alone. It's still okay to bring your gut instinct into the equation, but we've got to treat AI with uh, equal as much importance as we do these kind of mental models and, and gut instinct approaches. So Angela, I'm gonna be a new 
uh, Booz Hamilton client. I'm a CEO of a company interested in creating an experimental innovation lab. And I come to you and I say there are 1,884 AI startups that have fetched close to $19 billion from VCs in the last couple of years alone. Where should I invest my dollars? Is it deep learning, machine learning, natural language processing, smart robotics? Because within that AI umbrella, there are so many different subsystems of innovation. What are some of the intelligent technologies that CEOs should care about most? Well, I'll tell you, um, one of the most exciting areas is what Michael was talking about earlier, so images and video. There are so many applications for images and video. There are you know, consumer-facing applications, retail applications. There are also um, government and safety applications. And so if you think about responding to disasters or launching rescue operations or even just some of the work that the government does around uh, the census, for example, and how you can assist you know, many of those government operations. So the opportunity with, with images and videos, I feel like um, can, can free up a whole set of talent to do even more creative and exciting things. And so uh, I'm definitely watching closely some of the advances in that area. That's not the only area for sure, but that, that's one I'm really excited about. I, I agree. I think that's going to be a fantastic, a very rich space. Yeah. In use cases in terms of facial recognition, video, sentiment analysis, as a former CMO, I think it's, it's, it's a uncharted territory. And it can really help businesses do things better. Another. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say another uh, cool area is uh, P&T, position, navigation, and timing. Yep. And um, the one of the examples in the book is about the Army. And back a couple years ago, they had 212 different GPS systems. And, you know, the problem with GPS is you can spoof it, you could block it, or if soldiers are in a building or in a cave, you know, you lose signal. And so they've done some cool research at the Army about incorporating machine intelligence-based approaches to not only connect all the different GPS systems, but also to provide PNT information when GPS is not available. So that's another cool area. So, you know, one of the things it sounds like you guys have taken a holistic view of where the mathematical corporation could go. Um, one thing that I was curious about is what about the issue around ethics and how people should use that information, how you use, um, you know, the mathematical corporation, I don't know, I'd say how you bring all this stuff together for good and how we protect ourselves as well from a privacy perspective. The big problem with ethics and privacy right now is, in general, it's the last thing that leaders and organizations think about. And yep. we need to change that so it becomes the first thing. And right now, this um, kind of opt-out um, culture and process that we have isn't cutting it. So right now, you can, you can opt out if you pay attention to the fine print, but in many cases, if you opt out, you can't use the app or the tool. And so I'd love to see a model where we have some kind of uh, trusted data bank, for example, where each person truly owns their own data and we can each decide where and how we want our data to be used. But I think there are lots of um, really hairy ethical and privacy questions out there right now. and government lawmakers and regulators just aren't equipped to to handle it they're not the ones out on the leading edge and the front lines like these companies are and so you know i think it's really up to the business world to take on some of these tough questions around privacy and ethics and i also think um, it's not always okay to use what we can infer from combining open source data sets, just because we're able to infer it doesn't mean it's always uh, you know, ethical to use that data. So a lot of complex questions, and I think we need to come together as a community to wrestle with those. Yeah, I think there's some groups doing this. People-centered internet with Vint Cerf and Meilin Fung are looking at this. I know EFF has been looking at this. Some things to watch for folks. If you guys are interested in trying to look at that, 
issue on ethics, please let us know on the show afterwards as well. We are speaking with Angela Zutavern, author of The Mathematical Corporation. You can follow her at A-N-G-E-L-A-Z-U-T-A-V-E-R-N and uh, definitely get the book, something well worth reading. So thanks a lot for being on the show. Thanks so much. You're terrific. Thank you so much. You know, in her book, Angela talked about entrepreneurs in healthcare. She talked about oceanographers, drug makers, hotels, retail. I love the, all the different use cases spread across dozens of industries and how they're becoming a mathematical corporation. So it's, it's, it's definitely a good book to read with lots of... It is. It's a, there's someone we're definitely thinking about maybe as a, as speakers at our conference. This is... A, I, I've, I've read this... And the book is awesome. The book now, is... Yeah. This part of the show, Ray, as you know, is where we call the cleanup hitter spot. This is where first ballot Hall of Famers to Disrupt TV Hall of Fame come and share their knowledge and typically hit a grand slam, no pressure. But <laughs> <laughs> we have John Reed, founder of Diginomica, uh, co-founder of Diginomica.com, which examines the digital enterprise from the vantage point of real-world use cases. So what a great follow-up from Angela. As a roving blogger analyst, John frequently writes and videocasts, videocasts, <laughs> what a great fit for the show, on enterprise trends. He's a member of the Enterprise Irregulars, an influential group of bloggers and practitioners. That combination is very powerful. John's an advocate for media over marketing. He sees Diginomica as a chance to disrupt tech media with the BS wary enterprise reader in mind. That can't tries, be in the bio. He tries very hard. <laughs> he tries very hard not to use the word disruption. So we'll be counting the number of times in the next 20 minutes excessively. Please drink. doesn't always succeed. So <laughs> you can follow. By the way, we only bring people here that are must follows on Twitter. And he exemplifies that. You can follow John on Twitter at J-O-N. ERP. Welcome. Never snarky, always timid. Our John, go for it. <laughs> What's up, guys? I, I, I really hope I don't ruin the show. <laughs> we hope so too, because we want you back. So. All right. Okay. Well, we'll see how it goes for me today. I, All right. I, I started to feel grouchier and grouchier as we went on. So perfect, perfect. <laughs> this is how we like it. We want to get you in the grouchy state. Here, the question for you is: What is the word that we drank to the most? at every conference we've been at since January. What will be the enterprise buzzword of the year which caused more people to be drunk than any other? Well, it's funny, Ray, because when, when you started the year, I thought I was going to throw myself off the cliff if I heard the word blockchain again in a keynote demo. But it was, <laughs> hands down, it was artificial intelligence, which is, you can decide whether that's either good or bad given what you talked about the rest of the show today. But it, Thanks, I, I don't know if you saw that, but to me it was hands down. Every, every chance we got, there was a vendor was rolling out a new bot with a cool new name that's uh, essentially going to solve all of our existential problems. <laughs> now imagine AI on blockchain. Oh my God. That's, that's yeah. AI on Just, blockchain. Wait, wait. With a neural net tied to Alexa. Wait, wait for it, Paul. You'll you'll get that in 2018. <laughs> so. We actually we actually had uh, we had a CEO of a company that's uh, building uh, consultancy on top of uh, uh, blockchain, rewarding people that answer questions with Bitcoin. Uh, uh, Balaji Sarvansan, who's a board member at Andreessen Horowitz and the CEO of 21.co. It, it was a fascinating talk, but yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, and of course, Ray and I talked to Don Tapscott a few months ago, and he believes blockchain is bigger than the internet. Uh, so, or will be. Um, yeah, he's been saying that for a couple of years. So, well, <laughs> but we'll he's got see. a book, you know. He does have a book. So, let, a book let's, see, let's see what happens for, for Don. All right, John, conference highs, conference highs. What was the best conference so far in terms of like substance? Like people that real product announcements, good customers on stage since Jenny, what was good? You know, I mean, I, I don't know if I want to really pick, pick one, one vendor over the other. What I, what I had done originally for, for this show was I, and we can get to all these in time, but I came up with what I call my top five road burns from the conference season, which I can, <laughs> which I, which, which I can tell you about, and and, uh, and we'll get to AI in a sec. But but the thing is, like I think, the thing about these shows is that every show has its ups and downs. Like you know, one vendor does really great with customers on stage, but then their keynote runs three hours. Uh, 
and everyone's like, what the hell did I just have to sit here on this chair for three hours for when my laptop drained? Um, but, but the one thing, the one thing I'll say is that I think, I think our industry needs more conferences that are, that are more, uh, run by practitioners and topics because yes. too many of our con conferences are vendor sponsored conferences and look I mean vendor conferences have their place but like for example one of the really good shows I went to this spring was an enterprise UX show in, in San Francisco which is put on by more of an independent consortium and so it was filled with designers and people who were talking religion to me about how design was going to change the enterprise but the cool thing was there wasn't a vendor in charge of the show and so it had a really different dynamic and I think unfortunately we don't have nearly as much of that in our industries I wish we did um, it is what it is no it's it's been hard to get other vendors to go to the same conferences and to you know actually be on the same stage but I think everybody would look forward to it and uh, we definitely do see that we, we try to do that in our own shows but but what are your top five Enterprise event burns. I mean trends. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well. Well. The the fifth the fifth one I think is is basically that customers are deluged in the barrage of AR AI vendor hype, and and the problem there and you guys didn't really get to us in your past segments, but the problem is that the folks like like Angela who are doing really good work are obscured by by the confusion customers are having just with vendors who are not being transparent about what it is they actually can deliver today with AI, but they, they make it sound like the, that they've solved the problem, but essentially AI, as Vala said, is like a huge umbrella of solutions. And so customers are kind of deluged in that barrage. And, and what I was finding just talking with them, and I don't know if this is true for you guys, is that at the moment there's other topics that are a little more pressing for a lot of them. And, and we can get into a few of what those are, but that was kind of what I was finding is that in the midst of that, they're trying to solve other problems. Got it. You know, most of the CXOs that I'm, I have the good fortune of collaborating with, you know, it, it's culture, talent, process, and lastly, technology. They're trying to convince themselves that it's okay to experiment. It's okay to have transparency and share data across lines of business. Then they realize they may not have the talent, so they're looking for a strategic partner, which leads to, I want to see proof that the capabilities exist, so give me a reference account do a, a, an ideation event on site or, you know, get me connected to, to folks that are, are maybe further ahead on the journey. And then they realize, well, the processes that they have and the technical debt that they have requires them to really break things to, 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 to imagine the possible. And then, then let's talk technology. So it seems like there's a, it's, a, it's a journey that requires, it's a complex journey. And then there's integration element of these new capabilities with existing legacy systems and that's a whole other area that requires calorie burning and energy. So it's, 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 it's a tough conversation. Come on, man. You knocked out like two or three of my top five in your... Oh, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, gross. No, that was no, number no. five. What's four? Okay, okay. So number four is the big payoff of cloud moves and ERP modernization is data visibility. Mm -hmm. uh, so in other words, again and again at different shows, what I was hearing about was that making decisions from a single source of truth is the first really big win, right? Um, eventually, you can go from there into discussions around uh, predictive, which starts to get into your machine learning topics. You can start to get into data as a service business models. But the first goal that a lot of companies are still really struggling with is how can we make accurate decisions going forward based on the visibility of our data? And it's a huge problem, as you referred to, because that evokes everything from data integration challenges to data silos to organizational silos. But the, the beauty of some of these projects is that as you move, it's like you think about, well, we're moving our transactional system to the cloud. But when you sit down and talk with the customer about the benefits, they, they start talking about dashboards and being yeah. able to share share that information, not only with executives, but with users who are trying to make sense of, of whatever metrics guide their particular part of the organization. And I think that's actually genuinely exciting because when you hear these companies talk about what it means when they can go to a meeting and start the meeting with, with a dashboard of data that they basically all agree upon. It, it's no longer everyone's producing their own spreadsheet and then you throw your spreadsheet up and the person says, oh, actually I revised that spreadsheet this morning, so I need to, let's upload that. You know, so so I think that if you want to be optimistic about like the biggest win, I think that's what I'm hearing. I don't know if that resonates with what you guys are seeing. But. It does, and the worst thing is when you are looking at those Excel sheets, it's usually at a QBR. So you and it's usually a, a week or two after your closing of your you know your 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 fiscal Q1 
quarter. So you're like looking in the past, it's like maybe at best four times a year, and then you realize you disagree in the meeting, and now you gotta wait for the next QBR to really make sense of it, and that, that just, it's just, this is, this is just a recipe for why companies can get disruptive, hate to use the word, because they're slow to realize what the next best thing is for the organization to do. Or they're afraid. They're afraid that they're they're not they're behind or they're too far ahead. It's it's really bizarre, right? There's there's a there's a schizo, schizophrenia going on with oh my god we might be too far ahead let's slow down or oh my god we're so behind we need to catch up. It's it's you know grass is greener everywhere. Let's go. Through, what, are we through your list? Did Val uh, wipe no, you out? <laughs> no, I, I've got one. He I got one. He didn't mention. I'm about to roll out like a massive wank word buzzword here, but uh, we're in cognitive we're in, blockchain. Just kidding. <laughs> close. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're we're living in a multi-cloud world. Um, oh my god! I used the multi-cloud word. I'm gonna have to go. Uh, we got barf bags uh, here. Uh, I, get, I get your virtual I, barf bag. Let me just uh, let me just apologize to all your listeners right now for that. <laughs> um, but um, you're still so, a first ballot hall of fame. Don't worry. <laughs> okay, cool. So so the gist of it is that customers don't want vendor lock-in and cloud suite. So this notion that we're going to kind of move our suite to the cloud and have kind of an all-encompassing suite of products isn't flying. What they want is plug-and-play via platforms and APIs. And vendors that aren't going to get don't get this right are going to fall behind. You have to show that you can integrate. And sometimes that means dragging a competitor on stage and showing how you integrate with them because that's what customers care about. And And just to be really clear about this because there's a lot of misconceptions about this wanky multi-cloud term. It was originally used to talk about the need that customers have to essentially provision different clouds for different purposes and quickly move from one cloud to another. So it might be AWS versus Google or what have you. The multi-cloud term that I'm using, I'm using it a little more for, for the enterprise apps piece of it. So uh, I, I run you know, Salesforce for CRM or whatever. I run something else for, for ERP. I have something else for, for, for business networks or supply chain or whatever. And, and customers get really, really impatient when vendors can't show easy integration paths between these products. And so this notion that you're going to capture all this business doesn't work anymore. It has much more to do with the caliber of, of the partnership you have with customers. And I think if, if, if there's one good thing the cloud has done, it's forced everyone to realize that go live is just the beginning and, and that the real customer relationship continues from there. And you have to keep earning it again and again. And, and that's a big part of earning it is being open and transparent with, with connectivity to other apps. John, I saw the marketing stack diagram for Cisco and it had 30 some odd vendors, 20 some odd cloud vendors just in their marketing stack. Yeah, and, and so it, 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 it was a beautiful illustration of, and it was customer facing, uh, you know, partner facing, employee facing. They broke it by different type of users across the buyer's journey, consideration, purchase, post maintenance and service. And, and again, it was just a marketing cloud. So, so that point is, 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 is important. But also the dimension of multi-cloud when you're talking on-premise versus truly in the cloud. We had Anil Bushri, uh, CEO of Workday, uh, and we were talking about the challenges that exist with new algorithms in AI when you have to retrofit them to highly customize on-premise solutions that you have. When you think about multi-cloud deployments and integration, what are your thoughts about taking advantage of some of the latest, let's say, machine learning algorithms when you have to bring it into a shop that's highly customized. Uh, you snuck AI back in there. I saw what you did there. Uh, <laughs> but no blockchain. Uh, no blockchain. No nets? No nets anyone? Yeah. So 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 basically what what you're really referring to is that companies are really bogged down in past mistakes around over customizing software. Um, and it we use the term of technical debt to describe some of this. Uh, we've even started throwing around the term technical bankruptcy to scare the hell out of some of these companies into the situation that they're in. But but the point being that 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 when you move to a cloud product, and it may not even be a cloud product, it could be to a modern on-premise product as well. Uh, but this is particularly well suited for the cloud. You, you, you're really what you, you're not just lifting and shifting. Ideally, what you're doing is rethinking your processes, and as much as possible, you're thinking about how can I standardize as much as possible. Because in the past, it was like, well, I want to move this field over there, so I'm going to write a bunch of code for that. And it's like, no, don't do that. 
And, and the real uh, misconception I think that people have had, however, is that SaaS has to be rigid and inflexible, which I don't think that's the future of SaaS. I mean, just look at what Workday just did. They just announced a platform. Yeah. The purpose of that being to, to be able to extend that functionality beyond yeah. configuration. But the point there is that the way it's extended doesn't preclude you from being able to stay modern and upgraded to the latest releases. And that's the real shift in thinking that, that the cloud has provoked. And so, so for customers, they, when they make these moves, they tend to have to go through a painful exercise of standardization, but the payoff there is that they won't have to hopefully do that again and again in the future. Is that picture over your shoulder, a SaaS company knocking down a... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's Ollie Frazier. It's however you want to look at it. I mean, it, it could be like a customer triumphing over AI marketing <laughs> hype. Um, it could be, yeah, it could be a SaaS vendor triumphing over an on-premise vendor. It, it could be me, like, uh, throwing my uh, Alexa unit to the ground because it doesn't make any sense of what I'm doing. By the way, if AI is so great, why is Alexa so dumb? Um, <laughs> so... I, uh, anyway, uh, I guess we should get to my fourth, which which you already kind of covered, so we'll do it real quick, which is basically that integration is still hard and change management is still a content. It's a constant thing. I mean, when you talk with companies, I think so much of this now is about culture and culture change and dealing with change. And and to your point, it's almost like learning how to create a culture that can continue to adapt uh, to the changes that are happening. And that that's a really big shift. I mean... I don't know about you, Ray, but I spent a lot of time waiting for enterprise technology to actually be any good at all. And, and I, th I, I think now we're reaching the point where, in a lot of cases, the technology is there. Now, granted, the sort of AI, blockchain, you know, fantastical, personalized software of the future isn't there yet. But a lot of the stuff we're talking about here is there. And, and the problem then becomes your organization's not there. Your organization's not equipped. When, I, when we talk about, like, for example, putting design at the center of organizational processes, like how do you include design elements and how you approach everything you do, very few companies are, are even beginning to understand, like, what that would actually mean. Yeah, yeah I know. Makes Giving up some control, that's what it means, and it's hard to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, John, yeah. what are you looking forward to second half? Oh, wait, I got to give you my fifth. It's really fast. Um, keynotes are still too long and boring. <laughs> down to 20 minutes, though. I've seen some keynotes down to 20. Like, uh, but, but, some but, of them. That's true. Ray, Ray and I are still waiting for an invite to the Diginomica event so we can do Disrupt TV on the road. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah, man. We, well, we, we can turn the cameras around and have you guys on instead. Uh, instead of you guys broadcasting, it'd be fun, man. Yeah, now that, that truly would be worthy of the word disruption. If you <laughs> Well, hey, yeah. what am I? Wait, what am I looking forward to? <laughs> uh, you know, I I think I think the biggest thing for me is like I just when I go to shows, I just really look forward to talking with with customers about what they're working on, and and it's as simple as that. I mean, um, most most of what what we talk about when we talk about these shows is just trying to get smarter. I mean, the thing that I hate about our profession is that we elevate people into thought leaders and supposedly they're better than everybody else when in fact the the way this works is that you, if you're not getting smarter every day you're you're sort of falling behind and so I just want to get smarter, that's all. And I want to try to write stuff that helps people make sense of this stuff. We are live here with John Reed, founder of Diginomica. Co-founder, uh, co-founder, don't exclude my other founders, they'll be pissed. <laughs> Well, he's, 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 he's on a little hiatus. He's stuck on an island. He can't get off at the moment. John Reed, co-founder of Diginomic with Dennis Howlett, as folks know. Uh, Twitter, at John ERP. More than just snarky. More than a regular dose of enterprise wisdom. Thanks for being on the show, man. Hey, enjoyed it. You were awesome. This, that's what Ray and I try to do is get smarter. And as people like Michael, Angela, and John. Yes. Uh, and our guests every Friday that give Ray and I an opportunity to learn. So really appreciate our, our guests, and I've been told before the show, we've had 170, so now 173 guests on Disrupt TV. 71 episodes. Yeah, 71, we're getting close to that century mark. Uh, Peter Arvai, CEO and co-founder of Prezi, will be here next week. We got Shatan Du, CEO of IPsoft, and Alan Lepofsky, another first ballot Hall of Fame to Disrupt TV. He's VP and principal analyst, Constellation, Future of Work and Design, and He's an all-around guru in terms of digital and enterprise space. So an amazing show next Friday as well. Uh, Ray, closing remarks. 
You know what? I'm really excited. I think we've had a great lineup. Things are, you know, as we work into the summer, you're going to see some more interesting themes. Uh, Aubrey, our producer, has done a great job of curating, curating all these wonderful thought leaders. And so uh, you'll start to see some more interesting things from us as they, we roll out. We are looking actively for sponsorships. Um, after all these episodes, we realize we need to do a little bit more to invest, expand, get you great content, and uh, do some fun stuff. So if you're interested in sponsoring Disrupt TV show, let us know. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.